Well, we will go ahead and get started. Welcome. Um, well, I feel a little bit like a, uh, a reunion here of sorts and people coming together uh, from my whole life in one room from different places. I've got Mark over here. We worship together in Austin. Westover, i got my brother-in-law back here. We've, uh, we've been close uh, ever since I married his sister, and he preaches in Denton, Texas. And uh, uh, see Eddie Sharp back here. We, we both ministered together in Austin and attended a number of preacher's lunches together. And uh, Eddie used to come over and speak for us at, uh, at Westover during those years I was there. One of uh, the deacons who became an elder at the church where I spent 13 years in San Diego. Floyd Nelson's over here. Tim Castle. Uh, had family there at that church and known Tim all my life. Marcia worships with us often at North County. One of my fellow elders at North County, Tim Brindley and uh, Joel, but just uh, Sandro Oligabel and my administrative assistant. Matter of fact, Mary, you might want to take a look at this outline. There's a couple of typos, uh, a little correction up front. And, and it has nothing to do with Mary. It's because Mary was already up at Pepperdine early this week when I typed this up. So. So, uh, you know, this is the, the typist did a poorer job than normal because he didn't have her set of eyes on it. But that first letter A, you need to change that to a one right off the bat. Mary's probably already noticed that. But uh, so good to, uh, to gather as brothers and sisters and to, uh, hey, Linda, come on in. All right. You're tardy, but we'll, can't, we'll let you in. <laughs> and you've got to sit right in the front. You already had your seat picked there. All right, well, let's, uh, let's bow together in a, uh, a word of prayer. Father, we, we are so blessed to be called sons and daughters of yours, to have been adopted, to have uh, the glory of Christ in us, and to, and to have Christ living in us. And Father, to have your spirit poured out on us, filling us, indwelling us, animating our very being, giving us life indeed. And Father, we pray this week for a fresh outpouring of your spirit on your body. We pray for a deep fellowship of the spirit and unity of the spirit. And Father, we pray for the power of the spirit. We pray that you'll bring revival through your spirit to your people. And God, we pray that we will bear much fruit that lasts as a result of his work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Pepperdine's always a little bit tough. I, I, I came down from the parking lot. I had to park way up on top of the campus and got onto a bus and then realized I was wearing my prescription sunglasses. So I had to jump out, climb the hill again, go up those stairs and get my other sunglasses. And then I got down the stairs and realized I didn't have this computer to back up the stairs. So if I'm looking a little bit like I've had a workout, I have had a good workout uh, here. And I about said, forget the PowerPoint. You know, I was talking to my brother-in-law last night. We were having dinner, Ross and I. And, and I said, uh, I said, boy, preaching. We were both talking about this. Preaching has gotten much more difficult than it was when we first started. I, I crossed the 33-year mark of preaching this year. I uh, started full-time back in, uh, in 1985 in San Diego. And we were talking about how back then, you know, you would just walk up into the pulpit with your Bible and your notes. And then somebody decided everybody had to have an outline in the bulletin. So, you know, come Thursday for the bulletin to get ready, you had to get an outline into the bulletin, and so that was kind of a new step. And then somebody created PowerPoint, and we decided, well, now everybody needs to have an outline in the bulletin, and then we need to have a PowerPoint 
presentation. So the work of preparing for Sunday got a little bit, little bit more cumbersome and a little bit less working on the sermon, a little bit more on presentation. And then we had this era where people decided, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could have a little drama presentation before the sermon to lead into the sermon. So now we needed a couple of good actors and we needed to think in terms of skits. And now you started to have to think about what you were preaching weeks and weeks out before you ever got to the sermon. You might come to that particular sermon and say, I wish I hadn't planned this far ahead. I don't want to preach this particular sermon. <laughs> and then, then somebody said, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea if we added to our sermon video? I, you know, peruse movies and, and go get various movie clips. So now you're getting an outline in by Thursday. You're putting a PowerPoint together. Maybe you've got a drama team together to do a little bit of a skit before you preach. And then you're perusing the Internet looking for good video clips that might bring your sermon to life. And then one last thing. Somebody came up with the idea, wouldn't it be nice to have props? You know, wouldn't it be good if you had something in your hand to illustrate? People are visual. People can't listen for 30 minutes. And so, you know, we started creating things. I had a carpenter build a door once and actually had all the different types of, of uh, weeds and wheat and, and different growth to, to do the parable of the sower. And there's a part of me after 33 years, I just want to get back to the Bible. And, uh, uh, but it's become kind of a cumbersome thing, more to preach than it was 33 years ago. Uh, but, but the power of the word... And the power of the Spirit uh, is every bit as powerful as it's always been. And we're going to get into the Word this morning, but we're going to get into the Word as the Word speaks about the Spirit. Because I don't know about you, my childhood experience was one where I was exposed very little to teaching about the Holy Spirit. That's why this week excites me, a theme of a lectureship. It's the first in my memory that has been devoted to the theme of the Spirit-filled people of God. From my memory, when I was growing up in Sunday school and growing up in the church and my upbringing, which was a terrific church, terrific people, all I really remember are lessons that spoke of what the Spirit doesn't do, rather than what the Spirit does and who the Spirit is. In fact, the only real lesson I remember on the Holy Spirit in the church where I grew up uh, was a Wednesday night discussion where the preacher, who at that particular time was a word-only preacher. Do you know what a word-only preacher is? He, he didn't believe in an uh, active indwelling of the Spirit in the life of the believer. He believed and preached in our church, and several of our preachers did. He preached that the Holy Spirit only dwelt in us representatively through the Word. Now, some of you are familiar with that. The Holy Spirit inspired the Word, and so as you take in the Word of God, you were taking in the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit had kind of finished His work 2,000 years ago. It was put in a book, published, and now uh, here we have it today. This particular discussion was on Acts 2, a favorite chapter of uh, the church where I grew up. It was our chapter. And the discussion was centered around Acts chapter 2 and verse 4 and then down to verse 8. And the discussion broke out. The preacher was certain that Luke was saying that, that those on the day of Pentecost, those apostles, spoke in the unknown tongues. But one of the men in the crowd was adamant and dogmatic that the miracle was not in the speaking. The miracle was that they all heard in their own languages. So there really wasn't any tongue speaking actually happening. The miracle was in the hearing. And so this, 
This conversation ensued for about 20 minutes until the preacher stepped over uh, to the, uh, the side of the pew where this brother was, and he said, listen, old man, I have been taking it from you for years. And I thought, well, whatever we believe about the Holy Spirit, I'm not certain he is here and present right now and active in this particular Bible study. It was one of those times where you, you kind of look at your watch and you think, well, I'm glad I did bring a guest to church tonight. One of the things that I went away from, whatever those two brothers ended their particular discussion on, I can't quite remember. I was so kind of shocked by what had occurred. I was certain at that moment that whatever happened in Acts 2 probably wasn't happening today. I'm not saying that's where I am today. I'm just saying I was pretty certain then. At least I, I still know I think what the Holy Spirit doesn't do. But again, I wasn't at all certain about what the Holy Spirit did do. Uh, my uncle and aunt then, who'd moved to Oregon, uh, they had been in Churches of Christ and moved up to a small town in Oregon and decided after they moved for some reason to join the Assembly of God. And so that created a lot of discussion. Uh, my father, who had been, came into the Church of Christ from the Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian background, he had always had a little bit more in his earlier years, probably a, a more staid and, and high church view of worship. And it troubled him. Uh, so uh, we had discussions whenever my uncle and aunt would come to town and we'd go up and visit them. And one particular Sunday, my dad said, let's go to church and let's worship with uh, our uncle and aunt, your uncle and aunt, your cousins. And so that was my first kind of foray into a charismatic church, Pentecostal church. And there was quite a bit of tongue speaking in that particular setting. As a matter of fact, the thing I remember most was a man who started speaking in tongues and then he started running around the building speaking in tongues. And, and I don't say this in any way to ridicule what the man was doing. I, I just say, I was not only unsettled, I was scared to death uh, from that. I was about 13 years old and I'd never witnessed anything like this before and I wasn't certain what, what was happening, but I made up my mind at that particular point, whatever the Holy Spirit does, I hope he doesn't do that in my church. So much of the teaching I received and the things I thought and perceived were more reactionary to what people claimed the Spirit was doing in them and less proactive in learning for myself what it was the Spirit was up to in our life. And so for me, my, my faith became a little bit of a self-help religion. I knew that as a Christian, I had the forgiveness of sins, and by implication, I'd felt at times that uh, what the Spirit had done had revealed, he had revealed, you know, this new set of teaching, and the old law, the old covenant, uh, had been fulfilled, and now we had the new covenant, and sometimes I'd read things like the Sermon on the Mount, and in my limited understanding of what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, I thought, boy, the gospel teaching is more challenging and more difficult than the old covenant teaching. I mean, in the gospel teaching, it's not only a matter of staying faithful to your wife, don't lust. It's not only a matter of not murdering, hey, don't hate your brother. So it seemed to me, now we have got a harder set of rules, we can be forgiven, 
But as far as living up to this new set of rules, now, again, this is my understanding years ago. I don't understand the Sermon on the Mount in that way at all today. But at that particular point, it seemed to me we've got a harder set of rules and no real help to live up to what it is that Jesus seems to be calling us to. It seemed, at least to me, that this was something to be done kind of by my own strength and my own power and my own self-will and my own discipline and my own self-control. And I've got to say, I didn't have a lot of those things formed yet in my character in those early years. And then I went into ministry. I went into full-time ministry. I was 23 years old and started encountering things, issues, and problems in people's lives and started wrestling with the scripture and, and had learned you know, a better way to exegete and do hermeneutics in my uh, ministry training and my schooling. I, I felt I was understanding scripture better, but I still very much felt at times like this ministry thing is something that we do in our own power. And I look back on some of those years of ministry and wonder how much of that was ministering out of the flesh uh, out of my own, just kind of pulling myself up and, and going to work and rolling up my sleeves. One of the things I soon discovered as I started to read Scripture more was that the Holy Spirit was up to a whole lot more than I had ever believed. So what we're going to talk about in this class today and tomorrow is the Holy Spirit's role in our spiritual formation. And I've got more in my notes here than I'll ever uh, get to in this particular class. But what I'd like for us to do is look into 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as a starting point because that's, that's where we'll find the phrase uh, for this particular passage that we're going to, uh, or, or for this particular theme, ever-increasing glory. Your, your text might read glory to glory or increasing glory. Here I had grown up uh, wondering at times, are we the people that Paul spoke of who has a form of godliness while denying the power? That was a sobering passage to me, a form of godliness but denying the power. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul gets at what it is that empowers us. Better, after Rick Ashley's message on Tuesday night, he's a person not a power, the person who it is that animates, that empowers, that gives life where there was death, uh, that gives hope where there was hopelessness. Paul's letter, I'm not going to give you a lot of background to the Second Corinthians, suffice it to say, is written in part out of some criticism. He's doing some follow-up with Corinth, but at the same time his ministries come under some attack. So Paul writes in a way that is a defense at times, and he says some things that defends the credibility of his ministry. Let's look beginning down at verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 18 uh, together. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You know that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 
Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away, but their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces, now capture this, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's as if Paul says, here is the vision that God has for your life, and here is the vision that God has for my life, that we, and I think the term here is not reflect the glory, but to behold the glory, which other translations state. Uh, The idea of beholding is if in a mirror, in fact, as you go back to the original language, looking as if into a mirror, seeing and beholding and contemplating the glory of the Lord, we all who behold the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. The goal of God for your life and the goal of God for my life is that we increasingly, over time, look less like our old selves and more like Jesus. And it happens with ever-increasing Glory, In other words, the glory of Christ being seen in you increases over the course of your spiritual life from the point of your baptism until the time of your death. Some of your translations are even, this is a little more literal, from glory to glory, or from one degree of glory to the next. Isn't that a beautiful vision that God's goal for me? It's not that we as churches make good church members. You know, a lot of, a lot of our churches, you know, have as a commitment um, making it easy for people to become members. We want them to know how that happens. And then what's expected of a member? There are a whole lot of churches now with statements that say here are kind of the expectations of what a member in our church is. 
Uh, so there are all kinds of covenant statements and all kinds of uh, points that churches put out. And I'm not here to criticize those things. I'm only here to say that the goal that God has for your life and my life is not that we become good church members who kind of meet a criterion that makes us acceptable to the leaders of a church to be considered faithful members of that body. The goal, the vision that God has for your life and my life is that we, with ever-increasing glory, are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That's it. That's what God is after in us spiritually. That's what our redemption is about and the renewal that comes through the Holy Spirit. So if you want kind of a life statement, a life vision statement, just mark down 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I think that's a pretty good life aim and vision. Places your life. Now, as Paul kind of goes through this, uh, he says a lot. This is one of those passages where somebody looks at it and says, why would you pick a passage like this uh, to speak at a, at a Bible lectureship? Because some of the things that Paul says here are a little bit obscure and a little bit difficult so let's just let's make our way through it and uh, and talk about it a little bit um, and then I'm going to share with you four things uh, out of this text uh, that help us to see what Paul's saying and the spirit's role so as you make your way through this Paul begins by saying I, really do we need letters of recommendation seriously uh, some were saying about Paul likely you know yeah sure he's very bold uh, Earlier they said, but you know, he's not a very good preacher. I mean, he's got a great letter, but you listen to him and he's not all that. Um, and, and then uh, he's probably under attack for being bold, and yet, as you read in the text, probably having a criticism that he's not very effective at converting his fellow Jews. And this may get at the point as to why uh, he talks about the veil that is still over their heart. It, it, back in Romans chapter 9, he speaks of how he has unceasing anguish over the condition of those uh, who are his Jewish brothers who had not accepted Christ. It weighed on him. And even though he's an apostle to the Gentiles, he longed to see his brothers in Judaism accept the Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe some are saying, yeah, he's bold, but not very effective, not very successful, not very eloquent in speech. So Paul writes to talk about the glory of his ministry and ours. And the glory of this new covenant as compared to the old covenant. And he says, really, brothers and sisters, a letter, you are our letter. The change that has happened in your life, you're the fruit of my ministry. And it's as if Paul is saying, uh, it's not necessary that uh, I take credit. He says at verse 1, um, you yourselves are our letter. Verse 3, you show that you're a letter from Christ. It's as if Paul is saying, you're our letter, you're the fruit of our ministry, but really you're a letter attesting to the power of a changed life in Jesus Christ. And what could be more important? What could be better? Sure, somebody might write a letter of recommendation for me and send me along. It's not uncommon to write letters. of. I wrote two last week. Uh, for, for some folks. Letters of recommendation to help them get a job. Letters of recommendation are good and they often circulated with people as they traveled from church to church. Paul probably wrote letters of recommendation for people to say, hey, you up in Ephesus, except so and so. You know, he did that uh, as, as you look at uh, Romans chapter 16. He'd often send along letters with his letters and speak about people. But Paul says, I, I don't need a letter. 
that the greatest testimony to Christ's work in my life and to the Holy Spirit's work is you. The, the best testimony to our ministry is the fruit that's born. Um, had a friend call me a couple of weeks back. He said, Kevin, uh, what do you put in a resume as a minister? I've never written a resume. And now I'm in a particular time when I need a resume. What does a minister put in a resume? And, and we got thinking about it together. You know, resumes are often about you know, pointing to your strengths and uh, pointing to things you've done. Resumes are kind of difficult for ministers, especially when you have Paul saying things like, hey, we're not competent in and of ourselves. Hey, we're inadequate. And we've got this treasure at clay jars. Who writes a resume and says, well, I'm incompetent. <laughs> I'm inadequate. And I'm really this weak and feeble clay jar. Well, it would be all right to write such a resume if you could say, but boy, the Spirit of God has been at work in my life and any fruit that has been bore has not been by my effort because frankly, my effort hasn't been all that great and my work hasn't been all that good, but the Spirit of God has shown up in my weakness, His power in my weakness. That's what Paul's getting at here. So Paul goes on then to say, we have this ministry and he contrasts this new ministry of the Spirit, this new ministry of life and righteousness with the ministry of the Old Covenant, which is a ministry of death. Verse 7. If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved on letters of stone, came with glory, all you got to do is read Exodus chapter 19, and you read about the Old Covenant, and you read about how Moses goes up on the Mount Sinai, and what is that experience accompanied by? There's thunder and lightning. It is a, a magnificent display. That covenant, it came in glory. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai the second time with the two tablets of the testimony, do you remember in Exodus chapter 34 what happened to Moses? He would come down and his face was radiant from his being in the presence of God. There he had been in the presence of, of the very glory of God, and so he comes down, and he is radiating the glory of God. I don't know what that looked like. But here's one thing that we do know. Uh, when he got among the people, he would cover his face with a veil. He comes down from the mountain, and Aaron and the leaders, they, they look and they see the radiance of his face, and he talks to them about the law, and then what he does is he puts a veil on. And then whenever he goes in uh, to the presence of God, he removes the veil. He has liberty to be in the presence of God, and then he puts the veil back on when he goes out among the people. Now, as you read Exodus chapter 34, some of the things that Paul describes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 are not going to be found there. And so Paul writes, we believe, uh, inspired by the Spirit of God, and there's also some tradition that surrounds this that's pretty weighty tradition. But what Paul is saying is this. When Paul comes down, the people gaze steadily at Moses. You can imagine that. We, we tend to be people who are rubberneckers, aren't we? I mean, we're driving down the freeway and we see an accident. What do we do? We all look and we stare. We see something that's a bit of an anomaly, something that's out of the ordinary, and what do we do? We look, almost at times, to an awkward degree. So what Paul is saying here is, as the people saw the radiance of his face, he put on a veil 
to cover the radiance. Was he embarrassed? Uh, was it that um, was it that, 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 that some made him feel awkward? All Paul says is that they looked steadily, and he put the veil over his face for that very reason. It seems, Paul goes on to write, it seems that the reason he covers his face is because the radiance fades. It's a passing glory. It's only temporary. So, here's Paul's point. Here you have this ministry of the old covenant, which was engraved in letters on stone tablets that Moses himself brought down from Mount Sinai. He was in the presence of God. This ministry had glory. But how much more, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness. Here's the deal with the Old Covenant. Here's the deal with the law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. It could never make a man righteous, even though, even though it was accompanied with words that said, do this and you'll live. Every one of us knows that the experience of Israel was that they utterly failed in keeping the demands of the law. And so, even though the law of Moses was glorious, even though it displayed for the Israelites the glory and the holiness and the majesty of their God and what it is to live out a life in covenant with him, everyone had failed. And so what the law became for them was not life, but death. Paul gets at this in Romans chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. What the law then did for them was pronounce their sentence of death. Because failure to keep the law, sin, brings with it death. Is it right to call the Old Covenant a ministry of death? Paul does. And yet he says it had glory. And yet here's the deal with the glory of the Old Covenant. The glory faded because it couldn't give life. Unlike the New Covenant. Now, when I was growing up... Um, I heard a lot of sermons, not many on the Holy Spirit, but I heard a whole lot of sermons on the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And often the distinctions uh, emphasized things that wouldn't be things I would emphasize today as reasons for those distinctions. Here's what I mean. We often used uh, statements in Scripture like 2 Corinthians 3, uh, Hebrews 8 and 9 to demonstrate that under the new covenant, here's how salvation comes. And under the new covenant, here's how we worship in ways that are different from worshiping under the old covenant. None of those things are things that are necessarily emphasized when discussions of the covenant occur. When Paul discusses the distinction in the covenant, Paul's point about the new covenant as a contrast to the old covenant is that the new covenant is a covenant through which we find life and life could not be had under the old covenant. And the reason we have life under the new covenant is because this is the covenant of the Spirit of God, unlike a covenant that is engraved on tablets of stone where the people, Paul writes here, became dull. Verse 14, 
Their hearts became hardened and their hearts became stoned themselves to the things of God. They became hardened to the things of God. The new covenant, as Ezekiel points out in chapter 34, is this new covenant where he gives us a new heart. He replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And why? Because he puts his spirit in us. And the spirit gives life. Now, I, I used to think new life comes because I've been forgiven of the old. I've been cleansed. And it's true, but that's only part of the story. I'm cleansed of sin, but I felt like I was now stepping into a self-help project to be strong now, to try to live up to the demands of the new covenant. And they used to talk about it as if it was life and freedom, but it didn't always feel like life and freedom because they often saw it as a set of rules, and I didn't sense that there was a power to go along with it. And what Paul seems to be saying here is this under the new covenant, the glory of this new covenant. This is like the glory. A couple of, uh, about a week or so ago, I remember going out and the moon was just glorious. It was one of those super moons. And it was full. And it was a clear Southern California night and that moon just set up there and seemed to illuminate all of Escondido. Just beautiful. But the glory of the moon as glorious as that is, has no glory compared to the sun. You see, the moon is reflecting the sun. And that light that we see on the moon is really the light of the sun. In a similar way, Paul is saying, is there glory to the old? Our goal, our, our, our job, Paul's goal here is not to chip away at and undermine the old covenant. We did a lot of that when I was growing up. We didn't study the Old Testament a lot. Um, I know we would sometimes pay lip service to Paul in Romans chapter 15. These things, you know, were written in the past for our knowledge and learning, and we, we knew there were some things to learn from that. But I'd have people in church often say, what are you doing a whole study out of Ezekiel for? That's the old covenant. That's not our covenant. And we're about Jesus. We're about the new covenant. And if you ever went to anything in the old covenant to learn something about God and how we might do things, people would say, there's no bearing on it. That's old covenant. Kind of a very simplistic way of looking at the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant has glory. And it's true. We will never fully appreciate Jesus without appreciating and understanding the Old Covenant. We've got to read it and study it and learn good theology from it. But we should say unapologetically with Paul, the glory of that covenant fades when compared with the surpassing glory of the New Covenant. Because in the new covenant, we have been given the Holy Spirit of God. So Paul says, here's the problem. Moses would wear that veil to conceal the fading glory. The old covenant has fading glory. And Paul says, whenever the law is read, those Jews, his Jewish brothers who are reading that law, they still have a veil over their hearts. They still think the Old Covenant has all the glory. And when is the glory, when is the veil removed? Notice down at verse 15, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Its passing radiance is obscured to them. And Paul would say, you know, when, when I was not a Christian, when I was persecuting the church, I saw the covenant of God under attack. 
I was out to stamp out this new movement. Paul would say the veil was covering my heart. I hadn't realized that the glory had faded as it had. I hadn't come to accept the glory of the new covenant. And every time Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. The glory of the new covenant is obscured, and they haven't seen the passing or fading glory of their covenant. Now, look at verse 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When a person comes to know Jesus Christ, the veil that made the old covenant look glorious is removed and one sees the passing glory of that covenant and the absolute splendor of the new covenant. So, Paul goes on to say, verse 18, and we who with unveiled faces, in other words, we we see the glory, of the new covenant. All reflect or all behold and contemplate as in a mirror the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his likeness. This was something that could never happen under the old covenant. A person, a person growing from glory to glory, becoming more godlike. It was a frustrating thing. It pronounced the sentence of death. It didn't grant righteousness. And so Paul says, here I am, and I boldly say these things. Verse 12, we have such a hope, and we're very bold. So, with the time that's left, um, let's talk a little bit about um, these four pieces to this. And I said a lot more in that upfront part that I intended. You know, you get into this passage, and it excites you. Um, so, here's what Paul sets out to do here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. First, he offers this contrast in the ministry of the Spirit and the letter. And Paul does this often. You know, you'll see this in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 uh, to 29. Uh, Paul will speak about what the old covenant was setting out to accomplish, uh, what God was setting out to accomplish in that, Romans chapter 7 and verse 6. And there, again, he speaks about the letter as opposed to the Spirit. Uh, He gets at this idea again in Galatians chapter 3. And I've given you some Galatian passages. I'm going to be in Galatians a little bit more tomorrow uh, to talk about the Spirit's work in formation. But suffice it to say, what Paul is setting up is this contrast between the letter of the Old Covenant and the Spirit, this covenant of the Spirit, which is the new. Don't hear Paul saying, because he's not, uh, that the Scripture has some fault with it. That's not his point. Um, As a matter of fact, often in the New Testament, one of the things you'll notice that the writers will say about in quoting the Old Testament, they'll often say, as the Holy Spirit said. The Holy Spirit inspired our Old Testament writings. And the covenant itself came from God. So Paul's point is not to say there is some fault with the law or the covenant. And don't use this as an excuse to not spend time feeding on the Word of God. Somebody might get lazy and say, well, you know, the letter. Why are you so concerned about the letter? Why are you so concerned about the written Word? That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is to say that letter engraved on tablets of stone didn't have the power to give life, but the Spirit of God gives life. And and in this contrast, what he is saying is, This is what God was always pointing to. This is something that I missed. 
that the glory of the new covenant was the coming of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. That Christ's very presence, Christ wouldn't merely come, go to the cross, save us, and then kind of fly away up into heaven. He would promise another to come. His own very spirit. And this is everything the Old Testament, not everything, but much of what the Old Testament was pointing to in the glory of the uh, New Covenant. So, as you look at some of the things I've put here, I'll just mention these categories and I've given you some scripture that you can look at in your own time. The prophets often spoke about this new age to come. When you read in the earlier chapters of the Old Testament, you don't see a lot. You see some about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work. You see the prophets who are animated by the Spirit. You know, you see the Holy Spirit coming on Saul, and he prophesies. And you read about the Holy Spirit being on David, and David in his penitential psalm in chapter 51, you know, says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You see the Spirit of God in creation. Uh, you see God breathing into man's nostrils the very breath of life. But you don't read a lot about the Holy Spirit and not about a personal indwelling, a, a, a entering into the believer, the, the presence of the Spirit. So when you get into the latter prophets, when you read Isaiah and Ezekiel, one of the things the prophets point to often is that God's Spirit would be poured out that God would put his spirit, Isaiah chapter 42, 1 through 4, on one who would come and bring final salvation and justice. Again, the point's made in chapter 61. Then, the spirit who would be on this one would be poured out. And you see in Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 44 that this would be the means of renewal, the coming of the spirit. And... That prophecy and dreams and visions and wonders would signify this new age of the Spirit that had arrived. As you look in Joel chapter 2, this is the passage that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 about this new day that was coming when God would pour his Spirit out on all flesh. So the point is, when you read the prophets, one of the things that excites them is that this new day is going to dawn, this new age is going to come, and it will be signified by the pouring out of and the giving of the Holy Spirit. This time of a new covenant would change the way people would relate to God and how people would participate in the life of God, how they would know the Lord. There would be an intimacy created in them through the Spirit and a new life and a renewal. Let's look at to one of these passages. I've spilt water on my Bible up here. Didn't want you to see that, but uh, I don't know why I said I showed it to you and I didn't want you to see it. But uh, Look over in Ezekiel chapter 36. And look down at verse 25, down to verse 28. God speaking through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. 
I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. And notice here again, you know, the work of the spirit is not to diminish what we learn of God in the word, but to enable us to live a life that lives out the things that are revealed about God in his word and what it is he's calling us to. You look in chapter 37, and we're not going to look there, but one of the, one of the great things you'll see there is Ezekiel's prophesying to the valley of dry bones. And I think most preachers, I know that's one of their favorite chapters in the Bible. It's a fun chapter to preach. Here's this valley of dry bones that are brought back to life and animated and what does God do in chapter 37 at verse 14 he puts breath back in them God is the one who puts breath into one and gives life and they live again so all this anticipation old covenant pointing to the glory of the new and what's glorious is God will come in and live in his people in that old covenant he made his presence known in a tabernacle and in a temple. But in this new covenant, he will come and live inside each and every one of us. I will put my spirit in you. So the ministry of Jesus begins, and Jesus is one anointed by and empowered by the spirit. From start to finish, the spirit is present and moving and empowering Christ. It is baptism. It's the spirit that descends down. In Luke chapter 4, he quotes the Isaiah passage when he begins his ministry in his hometown synagogue and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He is anointed. He's the anointed one prophesied of the Old Testament. Then as you read through, the spirit's there from start to finish. Paul said in Romans 8 at verse 11 that it was the very spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead who lives in us. And then his works, Acts 10, were done through the power of the Spirit. So throughout the ministry of Jesus, the Spirit is there with him from start to finish. And then Jesus, he signified that the kingdom of God in new age had come because of the work of the Spirit. Look over in uh, Matthew chapter 12. Down at, uh, down at verse 27, this is where Jesus is driving out spirits, evil spirits, and their accusation is, yeah, you're driving out evil spirits. They, they couldn't deny that he did miracles, so they always had to come up with uh, ways to explain away the miracles. So they said, well, yeah, sure, he's driving out evil spirits, but he's doing it by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of the devil himself. And Jesus he says, you are on shaky ground. You need to understand uh, that, that every sin, every manner of blasphemy will be forgiven men, but not the blasphemy of the Spirit. What's the blasphemy of the Spirit? The blasphemy of the Spirit seems to be attributing to the devil what is done by the works of the Holy Spirit. For a person to be so hardened that they would see in front of them the work of the Spirit and then be so hardened to God and say, that's coming from the devil's power. Jesus says, whoa, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. But now, now you're on ground where you are attributing to the Spirit of God 
You're attributing to the devil things that are coming by God's spirit. That is an ultimate blasphemy. So with that, notice verses 27 and 28. He said, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, as you're connecting the dots of what your prophets have said, understand that if you're seeing now the very miracles that the prophets spoke of, understand God's kingdom is here and present. You remember that passage over in Hebrews chapter 6 where um, it speaks about falling away and being impossible to renew ones to repentance? The writer speaks about those who have tasted of the Holy Spirit. They have experienced the powers of of the ages to come. A part of what would characterize the age that has come is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the early Christians, they understood this. What, what did Jesus do as one of his final acts? John chapter 20, verse 21 and 22. He breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Spirit. It's always interesting to me that he breathes into man in Genesis chapter 2 and gives him life. Jesus breathes breath on the disciples. And what does he want them to receive? The Spirit. So, the early Christians, they understood that they had experienced, they were living in this new age of the Spirit. Peter confirmed in his preaching that the people of Pentecost had experienced the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Having the spirit of Christ living within is the evidence that a person belongs to Christ. Now I've got just a couple of minutes. Turn the page. I do this often in preaching. You talk to the folks at North County. I often get to point one, and then I've got three other points left. So let, let, me, let me give you these. The second thing Paul stresses here, and this is kind of the point where we're going to delve much deeper tomorrow, is spiritual formation. Our transformation into the likeness of Christ with ever-increasing glory comes through the Spirit. Um, this is a phrase that's used more today than it was when I was growing up. Spiritual formation. We even have ministers in some of our congregations who are ministers of formation or spiritual formation. We used to call them discipleship ministers. For that, we have to call them education ministers. Um, the, the point is, God has a vision for us that we become not good church members, not that we make good church members, but that we become like Christ. And so, uh, what is spiritual formation? It is God's goal for our life that we become like Jesus. Romans 8, 29. Uh, he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's growing up in our faith. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 15 spoke about how we need to grow up into all things and to him. Peter uh, says in 1 Peter chapter 2, the new babes in Christ, like babes, crave pure spiritual milk that by it you may what? Grow up in your salvation. Um, the goal of discipleship is to become like the teacher, right? Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 at verse 40, when one is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. Now incidentally, that statement is made, he's a little bit neutral on it. You will become like the teachers and mentors you choose. 
you can choose bad ones and become like your teacher. But the goal of a teacher is to help a person become like the teacher. And, and so what, what this is is learning to imitate him. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. As far as you see Christ in me, imitate me. Spiritual formation is the project that God has undertaken in our lives. And people often ask the question, whose job is spiritual growth? Is it my job or is it God's job? We'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. But Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 makes it very clear that this work that God has begun in you, he will bring it to completion. God's at work in your life. He's at work in my life. And it's only in looking back over about uh, 40 years of being a Christian that I see significant points where God has really gone to work and, and moved me to another place. Um, and maybe a better term than spiritual journey that we often use is, is pilgrimage. Because we have a destination. We're going somewhere. We're not just wandering about. But we're pilgrims in a foreign land. Spiritual formation is the goal of seeing that God wants us to become like Christ and putting ourselves into a life incorporating practices and processes into our life where we open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and to the Spirit's work. That's what we'll talk about more tomorrow. I love this prayer by Richard Chichester, 13th century English bishop. Day by day, three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, and to follow thee more nearly. Isn't that a great prayer to start your morning with each day? That's the goal of spiritual formation. Now, as you look in Scripture... What John says in 1 John chapter 2 at verse 6 is that our, our absolute final destiny is to be perfected in Christ and to become like him. So it starts here. Here's God's goal. I was baptized um, in 1971. That was a long time ago. Um, Longer ago for some of you than others. But uh, in 71, I was baptized. And here I am all these years later. And what God has been doing in my life, I sat down recently and just tried to introspectively chart this a little bit. What God has been doing with me and what he's doing with you when you open yourself to him is not changing you in one fell swoop. You know, at baptism, you, you come up declared righteous, declared holy, cleansed of sin. You have the Spirit of God living in you. You will never be more holy than you are at that moment. Now, I'm not suggesting you'll be less holy, but you'll never be more holy. And here you are, and what God is doing, he has set you now on a journey, on a pilgrimage into a life where God's going to work. And he is taking you from a place of glory to increasing glory. John 15, which is a critical spiritual formation passage because it makes the point that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. He is the vine, we're the branches. And, and all through that text, John 14 to 16, he speaks about the coming helper, the Holy Spirit, who will nourish us 
and strengthen us. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. But stay connected to Jesus, and you'll bear much fruit. There will be some pruning along the way. But that's all a part of your moving from one degree of glory to the next. I had a lot of pruning in my life. Um, and I've needed a lot of pruning. You see this in the apostles, don't you? Let me think about it. Here's, uh, here's James and John. And Jesus, you know, they're traveling with him. And he's rejected in one of those Samaritan villages. So what do these spiritual giants say? Hey, shouldn't we call down lightning from heaven? You know, they're saying, in effect, why don't we just bring down and destroy them? Hey, that's an idea that comes from great spiritual maturity. So Jesus says, okay, time to do a little pruning. Time to go to work in your heart a little bit. I didn't come to bring death. I came to bring life. Uh, there are other points along the way. Peter, hey, Lord, I'm with you. I'd die with you. But now all this talk about you dying and going up to Jerusalem and being crucified, I'll have none of it. You need to stop that. And he corrects Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Well, let's do a little bit of cutting here. Get behind me, Satan. It's hard pruning, hard cutting. You're not after the interests of God. You're after the interests of men. I've had times in my life where I've been angry at people and angry at others. And I've thought, God, why don't you do this? I've had times in my life where I've said to Jesus, I mean, not directly, maybe not as pointed as Peter did, but I've said through my actions, I think I've got a better idea than you, Jesus. You know, I'm going to kind of go ahead and do it this way. Your way is kind of tough. I don't like what you said there. And I think Jesus comes along and he prunes a little bit. And he says, Kevin, get behind me, Satan. So, so it's this process. And what God is doing in our life, we've got to appreciate the process. Aren't you, some of you have, you, have you ever felt kind of stagnant or like you're not moving forward or you're stuck? Maybe there's a ways that you're resisting the spirit. Because what his plan is, is to keep moving you for, from one degree of glory to the next. And sometimes it's just joyful growth. You see blessings. And at other times it's kind of painful cutting and pruning where you look back and you say, wow, I've experienced the discipline of the Lord there. But you know what? He disciplines me because I'm a son and he loves me. And he's trying to perfect me and make me better and bring the fruits of righteousness, which good discipline does to my life. So this is the project. Now, let's look at number three and four, and then I'm done. And I'll do this in two minutes. And I'll start here tomorrow. Paul then talks about how our utter dependence is on God and his strength and power. He says when he speaks about our transformation, this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Going all the way back, um, Paul keeps saying things like, hey, who is equal to such a task? Chapter 2, verse 16. It's as if his critics say he's incompetent. He says, yeah, I'll go ahead and verify what you're saying. I'm incompetent. Who's equal to such a task of preaching the gospel, of being the aroma of Christ? Chapter 3, not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. Chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. What Paul's theme is in these chapters is dependence on God rather than dependence on self. This is the Spirit's work in us. So be cautious. Church minister, church leader, be cautious anytime you get too impressed with your resume or somebody else does. Uh, ministry, by the way, can be a place of tremendous ego if you let it. Church leadership can become a place of tremendous ego. Um, maybe Paul at times wrestled with ego and was reminding himself, but I do know this, Paul keeps coming back to this theme, it's not in us. It's the glory of the Spirit. Then number four, there is this in-between nature of the current age. So here's what, uh, here's what Paul does. Go over to chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians 5, and I'll, I'll end here. 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Paul kind of ends this section. Doesn't totally end it here, but he's, he's getting into a wind-down of this idea. He says, now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Paul says, all right, you're in this period where God has transformed you from one degree of glory to the next. Understand you're in an in-between period. You've received Jesus. You behold him in a mirror. You contemplate him. But one day, you'll be fully in his presence. You're experiencing growth and change and transformation, but you're not yet all that you will be. And there are things that God has brought and things that he hasn't yet brought into your life. But, but here's the deal. Where, where you see yourself becoming more Christ-like, this is the evidence of the Spirit in you, and that Spirit is a deposit, a down payment, on a full inheritance that one day you'll receive, and he is a guarantee of things to come. All right, that's where I'll take up tomorrow for those of you to come back. Thank you for being here. Boy, it's been a pleasure to uh, share this. Thank you.